WVU is on track to dissolve its World Languages Department as part of the recommendations for program reductions released today as part of its ongoing academic transformation. The recommendation for many majors is a reduction in faculty without any other changes to the program. WVU's numbers say that includes 169 potential faculty reductions, or about 7% of the total Morgantown faculty. I spoke on the phone with a member of the World Languages faculty affected by today's news. She says she and her colleagues were caught off guard by the scope of the cuts. We were all absolutely shocked. You know, I think we expected uh, some measure of cuts, you know, maybe reducing, maybe losing majors and moving to minors. We were, we were somewhat prepared for that, as horrific as that prospect was. None of us was prepared for the, the idea that they would completely eliminate the department and eliminate all language teaching at this university. I think that being monolingual and focusing on monolingual is an agency of dispossession. I feel like that's one of the sad things about U.S. university system, U.S. life, that everything has to be foreignized. Anything that's not English is foreign. And these are tragedies. These are violent. These are ways to destroy people's lives and communities and cultures and attempt to destroy people's lives. A lot of times, that, for example, with the work that Jugita Antoine is doing and also Priscilla Cologne, though the lives are not destroyed, but they're not institutionalized, they're not recognized. What monolingualism makes is other ways of being fugitive and the Irish, for example, having to tell their own story in English. Really interesting topic. But yeah, I, I wish I had a better response. But I feel like, as Jimmy Buffett said, it's like trying to, it's like trying to describe the ocean if you've never seen it. What do we remember and what do we forget? And what stories survive? And what stories vanish and why? And institutions are, are really key in, in that. So first of all, we have to think about what we're talking about. And the humanities is a very large aggregate of programs that has the literary disciplines, which encompass not only English, but also the comparative literature and the wide array of so-called modern or foreign languages. Whether we're foreign or not, that's a question for a different podcast. And we're literary critics too, right? And we're humanists. Mm -hmm. And then we have all the things with the last name studies, film and media, mm -hmm. women, gender, ethnic, African-American, Latinx, right? Mm -hmm. Plus, some of them are straightforward humanities fields, but in many cases they are interdisciplinary rich. Mm -hmm. And in many cases they have been disciplines that emerge because of the neglect that literary studies has affected in both topics like media or minority communities or the world. A basic problem is that the crisis for the humanities were narrated as a crisis of English. It's a falsification of the problem in various significant ways. So the first one is that we have the hardened Romans of the humanities going down, but they they have gone down globally less than, than the enrollments in English because in part what has happened is that the students have spread themselves out into the proliferation of disciplines. Mm -hmm. One of the great critics of Don Quixote in Spanish departments, Luis Andres Murillo, you know, he was a Chicano working in the U U.S. University. 
it was unimaginable that Chicano literature would be taught in a university in his years. But using Don Quixote, he empowered a generation of younger Chicano scholars for the appreciation of the Spanish language as a literary language. And you wouldn't have Chicano literature later if you hadn't had that gesture before, because a lot of that generation of critics were empowered by the notion that literature was for them, even if they were rejected and discriminated in society. So mm -hmm. you see the histories of my discipline, which is not the histories of English. Right. The notion of what is political and inclusive and what is in changes. And if you deprovincialize away from English, then you can create more multidimensional ideas of, of basic principles like diversity and inclusion, right? And not just the institutional one that we have that sometimes is counterproductive to inclusion. I don't think that segregating people is inclusive. Welcome to the American Band from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. In the opening segment, you heard from Jeffrey Hurley-Himera, a professor of humanities at University of Puerto Rico and author of the book Decolonizing American Spanish, as well as a recent essay in Los Angeles Review of Books called Where the Humanities Are Not in Crisis. Also, Ignacio M. Sanchez Prado, who you may remember from our premiere episode, he is the Jarvis Thurston and Mona Van Dyne Professor in the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis, and the author of his own LA Review of Books essay, The Humanities Are Worth Fighting For. Over the course of Criticism Limited, it was always my intention to acknowledge that among the limitations of contemporary professional criticism is its tendency to be defined by English departments, by Anglophone genealogies, and American publications. This Anglocentrism and monolingualism persists and is even arguably on the rise at U.S. universities. Never has that been more apparent than last week when the administration at West Virginia University announced their recommendation to abolish the entire World Languages, Literatures, and Linguistics Department, eliminating all faculty and all language requirements, and replacing introductory language electives with a digital partnership, likely with a for-profit edtech platform. What's happening in West Virginia is a perfect case study in Ponzi austerity, the concept I introduced last episode a process of sabotaging higher education institutions by using them as intermediaries for propping up corporate partners with public funds, including government grants and allocations, but primarily loans through students. In 2014, the West Virginia University Board of Governors installed Gordon Gee as president, already notorious for his combination of lavish administrative spending and instructional austerity at Brown and Ohio State. He immediately launched an overly ambitious expansion, promising to grow enrollment by 25% in five years, primarily through real estate acquisition, building and renovation projects, online and hybrid degree programs, and international recruiting. As has been detailed in the Chronicle of Higher Education, G not only plundered the university's operating budget chasing this growth, but borrowed hundreds of millions at high interest rates under the auspices that the windfalls of tuition revenue he was projecting would cover the massive debts. Much of this money was doled out to corporate partners and contractors, real estate developers, construction companies, ed tech startups, and private consultancies, including, notably, the RPK Group, 
a consultancy that explicitly specializes in business model design for redefining the future of higher education through strategic partnerships and maximizing margins. <sighs> Meanwhile, during G's now decade-long tenure, enrollments have actually declined by 15%. West Virginia University is now carrying a nearly billion-dollar debt and as a result has opened up a $45 million annual budget deficit. Less than two weeks ago, G announced that the university would have to make deep cuts, laying off hundreds of faculty and cutting dozens of programs. What he is calling a strategic plan for academic transformation developed in consultation with the RPK group, whose cookie cutter approach recommends shredding the arts and humanities programs, even though, according to their own audit, world languages, and English as well, actually make the university money. What they don't do, at least not in sufficiently direct or reductive terms, is make money for the university's corporate partners. Unlike, for instance, mining and oil and petroleum engineering, programs which lose millions annually according to the university's own accounting, but subsidize research and development for petro-capitalist partners, several of whom sit on the board of governors. What the proposed cuts make clear is that G's strategic plan for academic transformation at WVU has a single guiding principle, maximum subsidization of current and future corporate partners by accelerating the chop shopping of the state's flagship university. Of course, G has offered up his own alternative explanations for the budget shortfall. University President Gordon Gee gives three reasons for WVU's financial problems, a loss of students, an increase in graduation rates. And the third thing is that uh, this past year, we uh, a thousand students remained in their parents' basement. This is a still unfolding story, with some good, though often belated reporting being done by the Chronicle, The Nation, the Charleston Gazette Mail and the Washington Post. There will be a special section of the bibliography for this episode, which I will continue updating in the coming weeks. You can find it at marktwainstudies.com backslash ggordonponzi or at the americanvandal.substack.com. But I want to keep Jeff and Nacho's voices at the forefront as they help us to imagine what the monolingual university G has chosen for West Virginia might look like and how it might be seen as the apotheosis of trends developing over decades and closely related to the supremacist anxieties Jed Esty diagnosed for us last episode. This idea that human beings must be literate and fluent in English in order to be credentialized, in an, this doesn't make any sense in many different communities. And I think part of the problem, a, a real serious issue, is the, the use of the American word or, or the whole conceptual umbrella of that, because that is a way to decontextualize what's actually happening in, in, in local environments. And this is particularly clear in Puerto Rico, but I don't understand it as any different in many places, in places in Massachusetts and in, in New York, certainly Texas, California, and so on, in that instead of defining these things through the, the, the colonial center, the imperial center, to look locally and say, why not have classes in STEM fields in, in Spanish, if that will be beneficial, because having access to a language, and it doesn't have to be Spanish, but there are certainly others where I, in Massachusetts, where I grew up, there are a lot of Portuguese, and there is certainly nothing available in Portuguese. And I know that restrained the opportunities for, for many uh, of those people. And it's not only academic performance. When people in communities have access to 
public resources, in, including education, in the language that they that, that the, the common language. There are public health outcomes. There are mental health outcomes. There are uh, also financial and economic. And so the kind of the the maintenance of English the the myth that kind of the presence of the English language is positive in many places is, is a very toxic one. And it's this kind of social engineering program to create certain types of human beings. And that is incredibly damaging. It is the, the colonial program. And, but I think one of the things that I've, I try to do in my research and, and I, in the book After American Studies is instead of focusing on that word, even though it's in the title of the book, but to use the terms spaces claimed by the U.S. political body, instead of using the term American, use residents of spaces claimed by the U.S. political body in order to distantiate from the colonial center and to get away from that. Because a lot of times once you invoke that term, everything else has to deal with it. It's almost like a plow. It pushes everything else, the local context out of the way. And in literary studies and in human beings' lives, those are ways to destroy people's you know, performances and their local ways of being and acting. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not performance in the literary studies that are happening in languages other than English. There certainly are. People are not getting funding for it. You cannot send an application to NEH or to ACLS that's in Spanish or any other language other than English. They will not receive it, and they do not conduct peer review in any language other than English. Now, the Mellon Foundation does, which I would you know, like to applaud the Mellon Foundation for doing that. Uh, but these are, are active colonial programs that are just not unlike what Donald Trump did, who is when he was elected, he, he immediately removed the Spanish version of the White House website. These are damaging and they're supposed to be damaging because they're supposed to try to create certain types of human beings. Thank you. That was all you know, very relevant to <laughs> what we're, we're trying to work through in this series. And obviously, you, you draw attention to the, the problem of nomenclature, one which is, exists in the very title of this podcast and one which I'm forced to think about all the time because American is a word that Twain uses in which 19th century authors residing in the United States have a tendency to claim absentmindedly, even those like Twain, who are anti-imperialists, who are incredibly critical of the colonization process. It, it, in the very title we chose for this podcast is the idea that one of the things that is intrinsic to the identity of what Twain calls Americans is their vandalization of broad, right? He titles this series of lectures after visiting Europe and the Middle East, seeing how the ugly American tourist kind of destroys everything around him without any reluctance, without any shame, often without even realizing he's doing so. And yeah, it's very interesting to think about like how that word, and I'm somebody who's trained in American literature and American studies, and these fields are trying to reach beyond the, the borders of the United States, trying to become transnational, trying to decolonize. But I think that has been a process that's been going on for half a century now and hasn't yielded a whole lot of results, as you, you yeah. say. And, and yeah, maybe you would like to talk a little bit about the sort of yeah. after American studies part of this. Yeah, yeah well, I, I would even say not necessarily beyond the borders of the United States. I think within this, the role, mm -hmm. one thing I think that is, is one of the great kind of absent topics in the kind of literary studies in general, in, especially if we are still in this kind of transnational mode, is literary canons, literary texts, and so on are often used as kind of ways to, to show a unifying you know, aspect to different communities and so on. So, you know, but if, if, let's put that, if we put that aside and we focus on the ways that 
this is also a mechanism, an agent of dispossession in looking at, and, I, and I'm sure, I think that Twain would, would agree, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain that he would, while you are celebrating this imperial story, it's destroying cultures and languages and, and opportunities and, and people. But I think it's important to focus on within the U.S. And that's a distinction that I, I feel like is very important because when we look at where Twain was in the territories, as it were, like not unlike Puerto Rico, but in the ways that language and the way that literature and the way that all these stories were institutionalized and are being institutionalized, so not were, this is happening now, mm -hmm. that they are ways to aestheticize the genocidal foundation of the imperial presence of the U.S. in these spaces, places like Arizona and New Mexico, for really obvious examples, that not long ago, there were very few people who spoke English in those spaces. And now, since the invasion, the way that statehood happened in those spaces was very much linked to the Homestead Act in that there weren't people there who spoke English and who supported the kind of the U.S. You know, myths and the U.S. imperial presence. And so, okay, the Homestead Act brings people there who are going to be English speaking or are going to probably be Christian. These are the cultural soldiers that come. And then once these are, people are the majority, oh, we're going to have a vote. and We're going to look, it's democratic. This is a very fundamental part of the presence of, of the U.S. political body in those spaces. And, and now fast forward to today, but it's not really a long much of a fast forward because the populations of you know, Arizona, New Mexico, the English speaking populations of those places were even just 34 years ago were very small. And so these people, many of whom from the Midwest and, and places like that, where they kind of wanted to get to a better place to live with weather and things like that, they don't have to apply for visas to go there. They don't have to apply for working papers. They can just get in their car and drive there. Whereas people coming from the other, another direction, they have to go through all this criminality and being criminals and the police action. And this is certainly is not limited to the Southwest. My experiences is when I was growing up in, in Massachusetts, where there were the, the Wampanoag who lived in the public housing right down the street and their languages and their ways of being were there but they were silenced by the institutions we certainly didn't learn any Wampanoag language or very little cultural history in the schools and hopefully some of that's changing i don't know really that it is but so i think it's an important distinction that for me at least in my own personal interpretation and understanding of how the u.s empire enacts itself and reenacts itself and pushes out and, and, and tries to legitimize itself, that these are very importantly within the regions claimed by the U.S. political body that are codified as states, not just outside, not just in the territories, even though in the territories, of course, it's, uh, it's even more obvious and even more colonial and even more violent. One of the questions that I knew I was going to want to ask, and I think follows pretty directly here, is that what you just talked about and which is further revealed by your book is that the U.S. is at the very least a bilingual and arguably a multilingual society. And yet one of the ways in which we sustain the illusion and possibly the delusion of monolingualism is through the university and through the structures associated with the university. And obviously one of the most apparent ways that happens is that the departments that are oftentimes charged with language instruction, writing instruction at universities are called English departments. And there's been a move to try to change that. Uh, one of the universities just up the road from me, Cornell, recently changed to, I think it's literature and languages or something like that, to try to remove English and Anglocentrism as a sort of assumption of the department. 
but this may be one of those things that you can change the name, but you can't necessarily change the the system quite as easily. And yeah, I think one of the things I want to talk about is if there is a crisis and what crisis exists in criticism is closely associated with the crisis in the humanities. And oftentimes what we perceive as the center of the crisis of the humanities is English departments. And a lot of whether they, we would call them reviews or responses to Guillory's work that came out earlier this year had titles like the end of English or the end of the English major, or the death of the English major. That seems like just a very antiquated way of even describing what's going on here. What is the problem within the structures of literary studies that are reproducing this delusion of monolingualism. And for those of us, and, and the vast majority of listeners to the series probably are going to have some sort of association with literary studies, how do we become less complicit in it, right? Because we all have been. I think that the role of the university, like I said, I think that is key, especially I, I would describe probably the land grant, the whole initiative of, of kind of land grant universities going out into these recently colonized spaces and then bringing in as a, a hub, almost like the axis of kind of the imperial mono everything, the monolingual, mono-religious, mono and these were baked into the ways that the university is built as far as the, the degree confederation, the way that degrees are conferred, accreditation, all of these things being monolingual. And the English department being at for a time, certainly it almost sounds an, an anachronism now to say that the English department being the, the hub of, of the humanities developed into other ways of performing, ways of interpreting in comparative senses and in transnational senses and so on. As far as the, the crisis in humanities, for me, the, the crisis in humanities is just to some a little bit of context about what you mentioned about the responses to Guillory's book. And I found it just so strange that the faculty at you know, places like Oxford and Cambridge and, and NYU and, and, and Columbia and Harvard are the ones who are defining this. Because if I were at a place like that, I, I, can't, I can't understand what a crisis would be. Because what is it that you're able to do all the things that you need to do as a critic. And why are these people the mouthpiece for the mouthpiece? That defends me so strange. But as far as a, a big problem with the U.S. university system is monolingualism and that uh, everything has to be English only. And how to break that, well, I would just say that my university is a way to break that. It's already been done here in Puerto Rico for 100 years, 100 and something years. There was a time when uh, this, that English was mandated in Puerto Rico as the institutional language, and it was taken apart by solidarity movements, grassroots movements. I don't know. Puerto Rico might be a bit unique because it's an island, because it's a bit far geographically from other parts that are under the, the reign of the U.S. government. But certainly places like Hawaii, Alaska, and Guam are, are similar in that they're, they're all monolingual. They're institutions. But I think looking beyond the monolingualism, because the monolingualism enacts a whole bunch of other mono stuff, the capitalist, the industrialist way of life. And I think that it's important to focus on that because it's not just language, it's not just culture. It's also, for example, daily life. When you look at what was happening in Arizona, New Mexico, California, Texas, but also Puerto Rico, Florida, like the way that the, the daily life was structured wasn't this way. Like the nine to five workday, that's something that was brought in by the industrial kind of modus. And so the workday being from eight to 11 and then from four to seven with a break during the middle of the day, that was taken out as well. And these impact many different things. I don't know. I would just say that the, like the University of Puerto Rico is exceptional because it doesn't 
follow these rules. And because uh, we, the students and, and the faculty and the community, have been able to decolonize and to a degree. Now, of course, it's an incredibly colonial place. But the, what the decolonial move does is two main things. One is unlink from the mono narrative. And two, locate and develop other resources, localized resources, so just say localize the perspectives. And so I, I think that that's really the crisis is how to allow methods to be localized and to be to function in, in concert, not with what we're supposed to do per the you know, for the imperial narrative, but per what our communities have, the character of the community, so that the communities are what is served by the institution, by the educational institution, not the imperial narrative. My university has, has been exceptional in that, even though it is the two main European languages. But there are Priscilla Colon, who's among a group of people who are reviving the Taino language, and we're hopefully going to have some events with them on our campus in the next year. That's the, the pressure point. When you are in a colonized environment that is English only, that has been English only for the, for the last hundred years, how to break away from that. Language, I think, is a key point because language is identity, language is philosophy. And once you're able to open your mouth and say words, once you can do that, then there are a lot of other things that are possible. And I think that's why I think that my university is very notable for this as a decolonial place. I'd like you to talk a little bit more about this because I think what you just said, I think for many people is going to sound like it's at cross purposes. And this is partly due to the kind of neoliberal rationality, economic rationality that so many of us have just imbibed for, for so long, right? But it does sound like it, it's a, a combination of globalization and isolationism, right? Like both localizing and also recognizing that we are part of this increasingly globalized society that is is very much associated with the sort of late capitalist post-Cold War era. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, those sort of tensions, both asking Americans <laughs> to think beyond the habits of mind and the stereotypes and the assumptions that they have made about themselves and to recognize that most of those assumptions are mythic. Yeah, that's a big but, task. We're well said. I think that's a big that's a big ask. But also to yeah. start thinking about community as even within this globalized world that local politics, right? Local service, community building, the peculiarities of place matter. And I think those two things seem at cross purposes to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, and I think that what what you what you said is is very true that the the ways that certain ways of being seem to be, they seem to be natural in these spaces. So the, the industrial capitalist way of life, that's English language dominant, that's Christian calendarized, that's all these things. And, and I think that's a real challenge, I think, for people to recognize and for the institutions to recognize. People have to recognize it first, I would think, is to, to recognize how fragile and how recent and how not natural these phenomena are. You know, I don't want to go back to language again, but just the myth that the English language is the natural or the best way to communicate in many of these spaces is incredibly tenuous myth, toxic myth. And also the idea that the foreign to domestic and when does this become domestic? Is it domestic? Why does heritage language studies always have to be French or Spanish? What about English as a heritage language? That's a real success of the colonial model, of the imperial model, of, of trying of try intercomillas unificando to try to unify all these different spaces and all these different communities under this. It, it has to make it seem 
historical, has to make it seem like this is true forward and backward in time, and that we just live in these places that are naturally this way. And that's very, that's a big ask. And hopefully that's something that, you know, decolonial scholars, you know, Nelson Maldonado Torres, entre, bueno, eh, Ortega, Mignolo, even all the other, the, the people who are asking us to do that, to look at other ways to understand our environment, to understand our institutions and to, to change them. And I, what you said about globalization, I think that's a, a really interesting topic. On our campus a few years ago, we had the annual conference of the Caribbean English Association, and there was some really interesting panels about Jamaican English vis-a-vis patois. And the, the Jamaican scholars who are coming from Jamaican universities, the sentiment that I had was many of them were arguing in favor of, we need to be able to eat and to be able to have an economy and we need the standard English for that. And whereas the, the scholars from the diaspora who were thinking about Jamaica from another set of contexts were not. And there was the tension in that room, I think was fascinating for me to see and to yeah. think through that. Because I think it has a lot of relevance, a lot of currency in other topics in mm-hmm. my own kind of life, Spanish and English, but also Portuguese in my you know, hometown and also the Wampanoag language. I feel like we can't really develop and cultivate these new, or not new, these existing in local cultures and languages until people can eat, people can have medical care. And in a sense, the colonial apparatus tries to put people in that insecure position where they have to do these things in order to be able to you know, live and eat so that they can keep their minds off of that which is a real a real part of the conditions of domination and how language and, and literature are parts of that. You may recall from the last episode, Chris Newfield saying that the crisis in the humanities, whether in the reproduction of literary critics, the politicization of history, or the adjunctification of the professoriate, is ideological as well as structural. What's happening at West Virginia conforms In his State of the University address earlier this year, President Xi explicitly framed the academic transformation as a response to the partisan attacks on higher education since 2017, and a consolation to them. And in the preliminary recommendation for abolition sent to the World Languages, Literatures, and Linguistics Department, in boldface type, it is called a mission decision that this method of language instruction is not aligned with student interest. As Jeff notes, the historical mission of a land-grant institution has been colonization and cultural imperialism. And the question of who decides what the student interests are is a decidedly thorny one, which varies from institution to institution, further complicated by the fact that student interests are sometimes determined by their institutional priorities, as Nacho describes in the next segment. The core crisis is enrollments. Enrollments are depressed not only because of economic pressures on students, but also because of managerial and curricular decisions. And they also get depressed because of a political discourse about the humanities, which often comes from outside the humanities, but has the effect of alienating people yeah. from what we do. And a, and a fourth one that I would say, and I hope I don't sound a little but I think it's a problem that we have to confront is that K-12 humanities education has gone off the cliff. Mm-hmm. And the, the preparation of students in humanities, basic skills coming to college is weaker than before, mm-hmm. even in elite institutions. So we have to do a, role, a lot of remedial work mm-hmm. on their arrival or students just don't embark on the remedial work and therefore the disciplines are not open for them. The, the enrollments are not just a matter of economic pressure, but it is also a larger econ- problem related to the war against the humanities in the in the educational system at large. That for me is the problem. 
The methods question is related, but I think that all this method works, which I think they're a waste of time to me as someone who's a very eclectic scholar. Mm-hmm. The method wars are problems of cultural capital. People want their method to be predominant in, in the face of a scarcity of resources. Mm-hmm. If there's only so many positions, so many grants, and there's many more scholars competing from them than before, that means that if you have a book that claims to be methodologically paradigmatic, you are vying for access to that scarcity of resources. I believe that in well-funded humanities, with the diversification that has taken place, which is a positive, we should need to to have those method wars. A lot of things are presented as mutually exclusive that are not, but they're just people positioning themselves vis-a-vis decreasing research resources. Yeah, I mean, we we absolutely share that belief that literary studies is stronger as a big tent discipline in mm-hmm. which many methods can exist simultaneously, many, many mediums can even exist simultaneously, many objects of analysis and interpretation can exist simultaneously. This has always been something that's attracted me to literary studies is the idea that seemed to predominate, certainly when I was at WashU as an undergrad and then as a graduate student at UCI, much as this before the financial crisis of 2007-2008, that seemed to be the predominant approach to literary studies was that sort of anything and everything goes. It's just a matter of how you present it, how you back it up, how you create the justification for the methods that you use and how you apply them to the text that you mm-hmm. use. And I think it's interesting to think about cultural capital, you know, a, a term that I definitely wanted to talk about with you, as now being something that's associated with method as opposed to something that's associated with product, right? With, yes. with, with a literary text, with a canon. And One of the things that definitely keeps coming up in the conversations I've had with people is part of the perception of crisis, this inability to refine something at the center of literary studies, that Mm -hmm. in, in, in the decanonization of the last couple of decades, whether successful or not, and I think there's a lot of dispute <laughs> about how successful decanonization mm-hmm. has been, but certainly the cultural capital associated with the canon has been diminished in some way, shape, or form. And now it does seem as though there is, to some extent within the profession, a need to find something at the center. The search for some sort of hegemonic or orthodox method Now, Katie Cadu went so far as to say that actually what has filled the role of the canon is the series of wars. The canon wars followed by the method wars followed by now maybe something like the genre wars, as she speculated. And so as somebody who I know has really studied the long history of canonization in literary studies, I'm interested what you think about that as a potential absence that colors all of these conversations, right? That there is some sort of search for the cultural capital that was associated with the canon, an effort to replace Mm -hmm. that cultural capital. The problem uh, is not of method, but of object. 
the object of our disciplines is, is a more important problem to me than the problem of method. Because for, to me, methods have to be subservient. We don't want to go back to the old theory toolbox form of the humanities, where you are a deconstructionist and then you want to play deconstructionism everywhere. And the point is the key to do deconstructionism rather than. I, I don't participate of that school of thinking. So some colleagues do, and I respect that. And it can be done well, but uh, the problem is that the canon, which we know was a mobile institution, meaning that it changed over time, and also one that for many people would claim is always exclusionary. I don't think it is. I think because it's mobile, it can become inclusive. Mm-hmm. But it's something that some people see negatively in general. It no longer carries that fear of prestige. At the core of everything is that what changes the object of the humanities. And it changes less than we think, but it has to do with the interdisciplinarity that was introduced, particularly as a result of the cultural studies revolution. And to me, the cultural studies revolution is not this hodgepodge of approaches from the postmodern era, but rather literally the story that descends from Stuart Hall and Raymond Williams and Birmingham forward. I like the term in Spanish, right? But we study cultura, eh, which is not the same as culture in English, which is a more anthropological idea. Cultura, if you open a newspaper in Latin America, means the arts plus, right? So it is painting and architecture and museums and literature and cinema, but it is also gastronomy and it is also folklore and popular culture, crafts. And I think that cultura notion from the Spanish-speaking world is actually a very good, easy describer of the of the job of the humanities. And that allows you to have a more inclusive view of the humanities without fighting as to whether there should be a canon or not. A more fundamental question then is if there is a common cultural corpus that a humanist should command as a result of the expertise whether it is a corpus within the sub-discipline in the humanities or a more general corpus in cultura, which is what I would advocate for. I think we should know about a broad variety of things. What that corpus looks like might be a question, but it's not a question we can answer now because what is broken is the structures for the definition and reproduction of such a corpus. I think that one of the problems with this crisis of infrastructure we're talking about as far as students is that the students are really ignorant. And you can even go to a PhD and three years in the profession. And there is some ignorance that becomes very hard to overcome because being knowledgeable or being erudite in the other sense is, is labor. And it's uncompensated labor. Mm-hmm. I pride myself for being a, a knowledgeable and erudite person, but I do nothing but cultura. And I also have both a form of employment, and I have made deliberate life choices that have afforded me the time to do that, which is not available to most people. The puzzle is how do we create conditions in universities and beyond, because this is not just a matter of the university to me, to allow people to be cultural in that sense. I think that is the privilege that has been removed, again, even for students in a private elite university like mine. They don't have an intellectual life even if they are in the social position where they could, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For the students who come from lower classes like myself, because I'm a working class person in my origins, it's empowering to get to become cultural. But that is something that has gotten denied in a broad scale. 
And instead of democratizing the humanities more, we have, through the infrastructural crisis, narrowed the pathways of the democratization of culture, because I would say that even if we consider that we have done great strides in diversity in terms of race, I think that we are really taking steps back in terms of class. Yeah. And I also think that, that the class bar for you can be culture is higher and higher because it's becoming less and less accessible to people unless they have unlimited economic means or very privileged life situations like mine. Mm-hmm. The labor intensification problem strikes me as, mm-hmm. as fundamental to all of these conversations, right? As you say, it is increasingly easy to arrive in college with less skills than maybe we expected five or 10 years ago. I think that's been exacerbated by the COVID lockdown and the normalization of ed tech and things like that, remote asynchronous instruction, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Right? And then that lack right, follows and is sometimes accelerated so that you arrive with, at graduate school with less training and finish graduate school with mm-hmm. training and then begin jobs that require more time and have a, a higher intensity of teaching, a higher intensity of service, more advising, and oftentimes for less compensation, which means what we might presume, and certainly what I can say happened for me at the completion of the PhD, was that I started to fill in gaps. I was yeah. continuously having opportunities to read, to write, to research that were helping to cover maybe some of the, the gaps that I had allowed to remain during my PhD program. But I think that's increasingly hard for emerging scholars to do, which I do think suggests yeah. what you're saying, that humanities scholars are, are falling behind, and that's complicating all of these problems. And one of the things that I wanted to follow up on is I totally agree with your narration of the sort of stratification or the diversification of the humanities, the proliferation of cultural studies. I do also think that one of the things that we are facing from the sort of managerial austerity that you mentioned earlier is a temptation to circle the wagons, right? That English facing a kind of existential crisis is going to consolidate itself and to remove the sort of interdisciplinary networks between those humanities departments. And that definitely mm-hmm. serves the purpose of the administration, right? That we we begin to battle for resources, this sort of zero-sum competition for resources within the humanities that creates barriers to interdisciplinary work, that creates sort of barriers to the sense of that cultura ethic that you were talking about. I think that the consolidation is the most likely outcome in the future. I have been serving in the Dean's Advisory Committee at my university for three years, and I think that what you are seeing across universities, and whenever you have work for things like the MLA or the CLS, there are ideas that are already being implemented, such as cohorts of grad students on individual topics, right? There is ideas such as centers that aggregate or programs like my Latin American studies programs that aggregate the expertise of people across various programs into a unified program without having much more than the minimum core faculty required to mm-hmm. to manage it. Because, I guess because of my everyday life, I don't see that negatively at all. Mm-hmm. And further, I don't think that's in contradiction with being disciplinary. What I think it does if it's done well, which is not the way it's necessarily done, but that's a different matter, right? 
if it is done well, it means that someone can have a core expertise and then there are many places in which that expertise can be applied. And we can learn that from the natural scientists, right? Chemistry departments have biochemists and they work with the biologists and, and they work with the medical school and it makes no sense for them not to do it because their expertise is valuable outside. If anything, my dream job would be to have an undefined humanities position and teach in the various departments in which I wish I could teach English students, Mm -hmm. but I can't because I'm bound to my problems and my departments, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not a threat to me. The threat is that when the, the consolidation becomes one of two things. One is a form of consolidation that is, as you say, narrated by austerity to reduce the number of people. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't be desirable. Right. And certainly we cannot trust our ministers that not going to be the case, right? So you will have to fight against that. And the second thing is we don't want the kind of consolation we're seeing now in some corners that makes us incapable of addressing culture in the broader sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm using the term in Spanish just to make sure that's what I mean. Medical humanities, for example, is a very worldwide discipline that study something legitimate. So is environmental humanities. But if you're not able to have people who do philological work to establish critical editions because what you're having is an environmental humanist, then you're undermining the humanities. We have seen this in some literary disciplines. I'm going to say something that is very tough to discuss, but needs to be discussed, which is that now humanities departments are trying, as they should, to overcome the lack of inclusiveness and diversity by opening positions on race studies. And then in some fields, there's nothing else, mm-hmm. or there's little else. And that's based on two immensely problematic premises. The first one, which I think is actually against true inclusivity, is the expectation that scholars who come from minority backgrounds are only going to study race. When what you want is diversity across all the fields of knowledge. I don't want to have everybody pigeonholed in race studies and then all the other fields are just white scholars. That that is ridiculous. And the presumption that the the object of study and the subject of study have to be the same is is an extremely problematic thing that really only Americans can think about. The second problematic part is, so who's going to do the rest of the work, right? So who's going to learn Portuguese to translate? Well, a very big language when the Portuguese program doesn't get investment. Who is going to be the next generation of scholars of the 18th century if universities are not hiring anyone that is an expert of anything before the 20th or even the 21st century? Yeah. Right? And that's where the diversity of perspectives goes. One of my great colleagues who's now a rock star, his name is Miguel Valerio, he does black studies in the 16th century. And he's doing groundbreaking work on, on issues like joy. Uh, and his work is revolutionary for understanding of the colonial period in Latin America at large. If he was only doing Afro-Latin American studies in the more specific sense, he would not have the expertise, right? He speaks Latin. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't have the expertise to conduct that kind of work. And we want people like him doing colonial work. Yeah. See what I mean? What I mean is that what the administrative university is really doing is that it's identifying a, a field of winners and then narrowing all the resources into that and thusly undermine our ability to study culture at large. And sometimes they do it in the name of diversity and sometimes they do it in the name of interdisciplinarity. Mm-hmm. But 
diversity and interdisciplinarity only matter if we do not lose the broad nature of our cultural objects. Right. Unless we have a humanities able to account for culture as it exists in history and the world, we don't have a proper humanities. Mm -hmm. And in order for that kind of paradigm changing, field shifting work to happen, the training has to come from a range of different perspectives, a range of different yes. disciplinary backgrounds, historical periods, so on and so forth, right? Truly cross-disciplinary work requires training across a set of disciplines, some of which may be disappearing if we only favor the interdisciplinary scholar. To me, in an ideal world, from the undergraduate major forward, you just are something conservative almost, but you need to study historical sequence. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the conditions to do that anymore. Yeah. But in the absence of that, I think that a well-balanced curriculum has to be a balance of the cutting edge and the and the core. Even if you are gonna be rebellious and marginal and alternative, you have to rebel against something. And if you don't know what you're rebelling against, then you don't know anything, right? Yeah. At the same time, I certainly resist the idea that canonical literature or elitist literature or ver letter or modernist art or whatever art cinema is in itself an exclusionary object when I have seen many of my students, many of whom are Latinx students, be deeply empowered when they encounter that world. I think that denying all students, but particularly working class and, and minoritized students, access to culture in the broader sense is unconscionable. And unfortunately, our system does that all the time. And also, Sometimes me, me understanding misguidedly what diversity means. Diversity to me means that the, the students from any background can learn about the culture of their community and their identity and also everything else. Yeah. I want black Latin Americanists. I want Latinx scholars in classics. I want Asian uh, uh, experts on medieval literature. Why not? And that is diversity. Diversity is not just in your identity box and just study yourself. And making sure we have one of each. One of each, yeah. And then when you're done, then you're done, and then you bring all the hegemonic group back, right? For me, there's not certainly not a crisis in literary criticism or literature at all. The power of words to transcend time and distance and the ways that our analyses of these words, these are all very healthy, very robust parts because they are, in a large sense, what make us human. The crisis is in the institutionalization of these and how certain voices are, like you said, and about blogs and about tweets, they're not absent. But I think what I say in the piece for the LARB is that we are doing this work. It is being done. And in fact, I would say for me, some of the most important, if not the most important voices, Sheila Laming, Terry Sazer, Rebecca Schumann, people like this, who are creating the spaces for, but if those have any ultimate impact on institutional action, on the resources necessary in order to do these things, that's another question. And, and I've pessimistic about that because of all this, what Jody Malamed calls these naturalized fictions of human difference that put certain people in places to receive and other people outside of that. For those of us who are monolingual and who are basically understanding the crisis or this current state of literary criticism through Anglophone literature and journalism, 
and scholarship, what are we missing? What does the state of criticism look like mm -hmm. if you view it from Spanish scholarship and journalism and yeah i thought since you emailed me this i've been thinking about it and wondering to myself about how exactly i'm not sure that it has specifically to do with language i think that if we were to go to ireland or to scotland or to, to jamaica that people are not as afraid of literature of literary studies literary criticism there as far as the institutions anyway so i, I don't know that Spanish is exceptional in that sense. I don't think that it is. I think that words are exceptional. Words are the things that, that are powerful and that are meaningful. And I think that these are the things that make us as human beings and stories impact us and the ways that we can be transported through time and place by reading these words. But that being said, there is an, an important and an essential ex experiential part of using another language and it would be catalano espanol or francés or lo que sea in that it's is it accessible can you experience that can you look beyond the constraints of monolingualism and and find something that's out there and i think that's i would say it's difficult but it's maybe it's not impossible i would think music is is probably the best way to the best way to get to, i feel like myself in Vallenato, which is a kind of a, a, a Colombian musical. It, oh my gosh, I feel like my life would be so much worse if it weren't for Vallenato. <laughs> it's, it's, but my suggestion would be to take advantage of the opportunities when they arrive, to be in contact, to travel, to, to you know, study, to get outside of comfort zones. Because otherwise, I think it's really easy to be lulled into the everydayness of U.S. capitalism and U.S. capitalist university and all the, the different types of ways of life that are inevitable in that. And I think those are questions that I think are complicated to answer because what the system tries to do is to isolate you and put you in a bubble and to make you think these are the only ways that things are. And how do you get outside the bubble and how are you able to do that and think beyond without going beyond, physically going beyond? Please don't say One of the problems that I see in academic humanities is that we need to work harder to align the humanities with the culture as it exists in the world. There is an essay that was very striking to me back in the day when I was a grad student by, by the Chilean theorist Nelly Richard uh, that is entitled Intersecting Latin America with Latin Americanism. And I almost want to write an essay called Intersecting Humanities with Cultura because since we have what Bourdieu calls an autonomy, right, and logics of self-valuation and, and logics of cultural capital within us, so sometimes that creates a system in which we are not really responding to the culture in the world, and culture is very alive. There's no crisis there, right? People read books, people go to the movies, people watch media all the time. If you get out of, of our province over here, you go to Mexico City, you just walk the center of Mexico City and book fairs, people play music in the street, right? I just wrote an essay on Mexican streets called An Endless Proliferation of Signifiers because it's all day palpable in the world and we don't harness that energy. And our students are very cultural subjects and we don't appeal to them. And that is something that should trouble us more than it does.
that's one of the reasons why I find the so-called method wars uh, frivolous to some level because they're fighting about wonky methodological things when it is questionable that they actually look at the at the way culture is happening in the outside. And I don't I'm not as unsympathetic to to people like Rita Felske as some of our colleagues are. I actually think she has she makes some good points in, in, in her books about that, but the politics is also including that, right? I, I don't think that the problem is not where you should do critique or post-critique, which to me is a, is a very trivial discussion, but rather our methods capturing the complexity and the multidimensionality of culture in the world. And some of it is aesthetic, some of it is political, some of it is subjective, some of it is affective. And we sometimes present things like the affective tone as if they were novelties, but it is just that we sometimes get out of our cages of cultural capital to try to develop a methodology that captures something that our methods are blind to. But it's, it has always been there. Like, for Latin Americans, the public humanities is very funny for that reason, because that's our cultura since forever, right? The case of the university is very much in the Anglosphere. But the, the whole point is really has to be about more accurately reflecting the aliveness of culture in the world and not so much the things that give us cultural capital within our institutions. In this episode, we heard from Ignacio M. Sanchez Prado and Jeffrey Hurley Himera. We'll be hearing from both of them again in this series, but for more about their work and a bibliography for this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash ponzi or subscribe to our Substack. I gave you two episodes this week, but I fear they weren't exactly uplifting ones. So I'm going to close out with an excerpt from my interview with Joe Locke, the composer, band leader, and jazz vibraphonist who generously lent his new album, Macram, as soundtrack for this series. You'll get to hear about the genesis for that album and learn a lot about Joe's career, but our conversation also touched on themes from throughout the series and even drew on an analogy between jazz education and professional criticism. I had a lot of fun editing this segment, and I hope you do as well. As jazz musicians often have, trying to reach across arbitrary borders. Musical traditions, genre traditions are constructed oftentimes around national lines, political lines, religious lines, so on and so forth. Right? And I, I, I found it very interesting that the, the title track is tr- trying to pay homage in some way to a contemporary, is he a Lebanese musician? Is that right? Yeah, if he's from Beirut. He's a Lebanese musician, bass player. Yeah. Composer. Is it uh, Makram Abdul Hassan? Is yes. That- and so I, I wanted to start there. What was it about his music that spoke to you? And then as a composer working in your own specific tradition, how did you try to sort of marshal that communication? Or how did you try to adapt the inspiration that you took from him into your own very recognizable and, and characteristic composing identity? It's very interesting, Matt, thank you. And uh, it gives me an opportunity to talk about Makram. To answer your question, the only thing I can do is to tell you how I met him. And I wasn't planning to call the album Makram. I wasn't planning to write a song for him. I was teaching at a European conservatory as a visiting professor. 
As so often is the case, after my first day of being there, I I was planning to be there for a week. I was there for a week. And after the first day, I I went back to my hotel and I was inundated with narcissistic emails and text messages from students sending me videos of themselves playing and check Mm -hmm. me out and dig me. And not even with really almost not so much as a hello, but it was just, hey, dig me, check me out. Yeah. And I mean, frankly, I'm not having it, man, because there are still people who were raised right. And I'm not celebrating those who weren't, man. (laughs) And I was just after opening the 10th one of, hey, dig me, I'm so great. I opened the the, the 16th email and it, it was a note from this young man who said, Joe, hi, my name is Makram and I'm a master's student in composition and bass here. I wanted to thank you for your master class this afternoon. I got a lot out of it. And I was just here in my place and I thought I would send you this. It's a really creative digital animation that accompanies Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. And I thought it was wonderful and I hope it brings you as much joy as it brought Mm. me. Looking forward to seeing and connecting with you this week. Thanks so much for today, Makram. And my whole vibe just changed. It renewed my faith in people. I got to meet him and have some interaction with him in the course of the week. And he just became somebody, he became a friend in that matter of days. He showed me who he was in that first interaction. And we had some interaction via these various platforms. And I reached out to him after the port explosion in Beirut because I was worried about him. And I didn't hear from him for a few days and I was worried. And when I heard from him, he said, Joe, sorry, I haven't been in touch. We've been digging for bodies for the last oh. couple of, you know, for, man, for the last few days. And that's the kind of cat he is. He said, I'm fine, but we've been really rolling up our sleeves and dealing with yeah. this. And so anyway, so, so what happened, Matt, was I was just at some point after that, I was sitting at the piano. And a lot of times when you're writing, I'm sure it's the same with you. Sometimes you start writing and you don't even know what you're writing about, but it reveals itself. I was sitting at the piano in this kind of minor blues shape I was playing with, and this melody started to emerge, and it sounded Middle Eastern in character to me. And he had been on my mind, in my heart, because I was thinking, man, what is this cat dealing with, with what's happening in Beirut right now? And this melody started to emerge. I wasn't thinking overtly of him or planning to write a song for him, but I realized, ah, I'm writing this for Makram. And so I just called it Makram and I contacted him and said, Makram, I just, I just wrote a song for you. I'll send it to you if you like. And he said, yeah, man, please. So I sent it to him and a month later he got back to me and he said, Joe, I took the liberty of reimagining it with my chamber trio, consisting of, of the Rick, the, the Middle Eastern tambourine, the oud, the stringed instrument and bass. And what he did was he had taken my composition and turned it inside out and did all this cool stuff with it for those three instruments. And that gave me the idea, Matt. I had already recorded Makram with my quartet for the album, and it was just going to be the quartet, vibes, piano, bass, and drums. But when I heard his version, I said, Makram, do you think we could get your colleagues, if I send the tracks to Beirut, could we get the oud and the rick to join us on the already existing track? And he did that, and that's what you hear on the album. It's a wonderful combination of the oud and the vibes creating this new sound. Of- it's a very distinctive texture, yeah.
And it also made me feel that somehow it connected the song to the person for whom it was written. And that some of the music on the track was actually coming from Beirut. So it was really meaningful to me. I, I didn't write it because I was inspired by his music. Actually, I wrote it before I had ever heard his music. That's but interesting. But it makes sense to me because it was his humanity that inspired me to write it, not his music. Yeah. But I'm since a fan of his music, of course, as well. Yeah. Thanks for asking, Matt. It gives me a chance to talk about him. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Describing that initial interaction and the way that his desire for kind of mutual connection and learning set him apart. Yeah. Also, it also speaks to one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was this appetite for cross-genre pollination that I see all over your music, right? Not just within music, you know, clearly several of the tracks on your albums are, are, are named for other musicians, and but also there's sort of references to poetic forms. There's a, a an old track that I love from one of your co collaborations with Jeff Keezer that's actually based on a, a Edgar Allan Poe poem, right? Like. You're, you're clearly reaching across in that the example of Makram sending you the Stravinsky animation. He clearly was listening to you in a way that recognized your your interest in the way that these genres, mediums, forms cross-pollinate one another. And that as much as jazz is a tradition, it's a tradition that is some, in some ways based upon its appetite for everything, right? And, and so I, I wanted to talk to you about, yeah, how, how do you adapt, right? What is your philosophy of adaptation when you are taking these ideas, these sounds, these forms, from it seems like from all over are there there methods or thought processes that you deploy in order to reconcile yourself to this enormous aesthetic appetite that you clearly have oh. matt, matt thank you for asking man and i think maybe the answers might be surprising but here it is i feel like i've been really lucky to collaborate with some really great musicians from different cultures, but I am not that musician who, I'm not a scholar of world music. I'm really not, and I'll explain that. One thing that I have great distaste for is, is what do we call them? What do you call it when you take the, from the cultures? Cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation, a colonialist. You could accuse Paul Simon of for, right. for doing that. But for me, it's the example of the white guy wearing dreadlocks and, and walking around saying, yeah, man, yeah, man. Mm. That ain't, that's not your culture, man. That ain't, that's not for you. And it's very distasteful for me that, but a love and appreciation and deep respect for is another story. The other thing that I want to say about one's origin and how it affects your music, just like when you hear Cesar Camargo Mariano, you hear Brazil. And I used to always be jealous of musicians in whom you could hear their place of origin. Because I never felt that I had that. And like when you hear, for example, Jan Garbarek's music, I hear Scandinavia. When, when you hear the music of Pat Metheny, I really feel like I hear the expanse of the Midwest. 
Stanley Turrentine. I feel like I hear Pittsburgh, man. And I didn't realize until I was in my 50s and I was inducted very gratefully into the Rochester Music Hall of Fame, who have people like Steve Gadd and Ron Carter and, and many mm -hmm. wonderful people. I was inducted and I was accepting the award. And it hit me almost in that moment when I was on the podium that I do have a place and that's that that's that's in my sound. And it's mm -hmm. upstate New York. Yeah. And there's something, yeah. <laughs> there's something in my sound that I do have an identity in my sound and a, and a geographic place of origin in my sound, but I didn't realize it until I was in my mid-50s. I've been very lucky to have had a relationship with some great salsa musicians. I grew up when I was 16 and 17. I was 17, I had my first apartment and I lived next to the Eastman dorms, the Eastman School of Music dormitories, but I didn't go to college, I'm self-taught. And I was already playing professionally and I was 17 and I was playing jazz vibes and I was like living the music. And I had a little attitude about mm -hmm. the, the kids yeah. that were going to Eastman and, and studying jazz at the conservatory. And I would, I would turn my speakers in the warm weather. I'd put my speakers out the window and blast like music. And I would be like, check this out, you schoolboys and girls. This is the real deal. One of the albums I would blast was Eddie Palmieri, the son of Latin music. And there was a, new, a song called Un Dia Bonita. And it was just a powerhouse of a track. And Eddie Palmieri, even though I'm not a huge salsa fan, kind of am because I grew up with Fania and Willie Colon and Johnny Pacheco and, and all this great stuff, Ishmael Rivera and, and, and the music of Eddie. That music's in my DNA just because I loved it because of its visceral, emotional, passionate content. And man, I was living in New York and I get a phone call one day, 20, 30 years later, and it's Eddie Palmieri asking me to join him to reimagine a classic album he did with Cal Jader called El Sonido Nuevo, the mm -hmm. new sound with Cal yeah, Jader. Yeah. And I'm on the phone listening to Eddie Palmieri saying, would you come into the studio, WUVO, the Denver NPR affiliate, wants us to reimagine that album with La Tipica, the trombone section that was on the original album. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and that was the beginning of my friendship with Eddie Palmieri. I've collaborated with with, uh, with Manny Oquendo and Conjunto Libre and the Fort Apache band, Jerry and Andy Gonzalez. I'm a guest on the Spanish Harlem Orchestras, a collaboration that they did with a bunch of great jazz musicians. But I'm not that salsa guy. I'm just myself. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a jazz musician. I'm an improviser. My instrument is the vibes. And Matt, the only way I can explain it is that there's something that, for example, Eddie just heard in the way I played and somehow it works that they're playing the clave and they know the deep roots of the music, which I don't, 
but it works when we come together and I'm fully myself. Mm-hmm. Eddie is fully himself. It works. Mm-hmm. I do the same thing with a group called Trio de Paz, a wonderful Brazilian trio. They're really playing Brazilian music at the highest level. Or the iconic Cesar Camargo Mariano, who's an iconic Brazilian musician. He was the arranger uh, and pianist on the Antonio Carlos Jobim Elise Regine album, which is like one of the most famous albums in Bossa Nova history. And we play together, and I don't feign to be an expert of Brazilian music, but it works somehow. But I think maybe because, is it because jazz is so universal in its nature that I can still be myself on top of those beautiful Mm -hmm. cultural rhythms, and it still works. I'm going to posit just like an alternative interpretation of it. Is it because part of the sort of community pressures of jazz have to do with attaining a kind of technical virtuosity that then once achieved, or I know always in process, right? Mm-hmm. But, but like at a certain level, your technical virtuosity can allow for a comfort level, regardless of what tradition you're playing in, what situation, you know, and I was a very mediocre uh, musician compared to you. But I think a lot about my teens and 20s when I did spend a lot of time playing music and the extent to which being forced to be on a stage and improvise in a situation where I didn't necessarily know what was coming, right? It insulates you from a kind of anxiety, self-consciousness, so on and so forth, right? You know you're going to mess up, (laughs) for one thing, and that's okay. And it also means that you learn to trust what you do know. And so I'm curious, how does the attainment of the technical skill that a musician like yourself has, as uh, several of the critics I read said, quite possibly the best living vibraphonist, How does that overlap within the creative side that you have as a composer and arranger, which at least from my reckonings is something that you are very consciously developing in recent years. Thank you for saying that. And yeah, I just wonder how those two sides of your musicianship, how do they come together? Matt, I really appreciate it shows what a depth of understanding you have of what I do because you said, the, the technical virtuosity you've attained, and then you corrected yourself and saying, uh, or that's in progress, because it's always in progress, right? Yeah. isn't it? That's what you said. Yeah. And man, that's the truth, man, you know, because people say to me, oh, Joe, you've got so much together. It's so great. Like, you don't have to practice. Or someone would call and say, what are you doing? And I'd say, I'm practicing. You, you still practice? I have to practice more now than I did when I was younger. There's more that I'm trying to get to now. And there's more that I know, and therefore, there's more that I have to maintain. Yeah. Um, it's funny, Bob Brookmeyer, the great composer, arranger, trombonist, Bob Brookmeyer said, man, you got to always weed the garden. So for me, 
I'm in this constant state of arriving. I know when my chops feel good and when things feel fluid. For me, it's all about things feeling like water to make the vibraphone, these 37 cold bars, to make them feel liquid. And it, unfortunately, it needs great technical ability to sound like you have no technique, that you're mm -hmm. just pouring a glass of water down a hill. But so that's why I need to shed a lot, man. That's why I need to shed a lot. The other thing, man, I wanted to say is then thanks for talking about the, the improvisation versus composition thing. I really do feel like I've come into my own in the last, I'd say, 20 years. I started moving in the right direction, I feel like, in the last couple of decades. And I feel as a composer, my identity has become much more individual and stronger. And the projects I've been doing have been much more personal. And I know who I am more now. And I, I know what I want to say. And, and the projects that I've done, A Subtle Disguise and, and a project I did based on a poem by Barbara Sraga called Love is a Pendulum. Of the five movement suite or Four Walls of Freedom, which is based on a quote by Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk. I feel like th those are deeply personal projects and I think my writing is better it's more fleshed out and and I, I appreciate you for noticing that man I want to acknowledge that this is maybe a hard thing to even talk about but as we've been conversing there's been a thread that sort of runs through from your discussion of the students at the conservatory trying to self-promote themselves to you, right? Make that networking connection. I think to a lot of stuff you've been talking about on, on American Vandal, man. All the way down to you talking about when you were younger, the inevitable competitiveness that you felt with the conservatory, yeah. the Eastman students, these sort of competing infrastructures. And I think this is really important to the, the series that I'm trying to make now, because one of the questions I'm trying to raise is what kind of distinctions do we make between criticism that is created within the structures of academia, criticism that oftentimes is dispersed by mainstream publications like the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker and so on and so forth. And then these other modes of criticism that are appearing on Goodreads and BookTube and on podcasts and throughout social media and are dispersed in very different ways, but nonetheless have an audience, have an ambition. And, and it, it strikes me that th this is something we can talk about with music as well, right? Like how has the, the sort of the hierarchical and, and institutional structures that produce jazz musicians, right? How have you become both more aware of them? And do you have some sort of critique of them as it sounds like you do? Presumably, if you're getting this whole set of emails, like somebody or something is training these students to think that's the right thing to do. Yeah. And, and, and how, how do we acknowledge the structures that create that kind of behavior, right? Instead of what Macron did, which is try to connect with you as an artist and acknowledge what he had to learn from you, but in so doing also show you that you had something to learn from him. Man, who is the who is the gentleman that you were, that I was listening to, who did the plausible end of social media? Uh, Ian uh, Bogus. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, Ian talked about it a bit. There's this, there's this, what social media has done is it's created this in our own minds. We're all the stars of our own movie. Here's a little clip from the interview I did with Ian last year. There's that kind of thing where you're kind of instantly renowned by virtue of the, the spread of your, of your name and message. And then there's uh, the supposedly positive you know, version of it where it's, oh, I'm an aspiring whatever I am. or not an aspiring anything. But the thing about me, along with everyone on the internet, is that you ought to be hearing me. You ought to see my images. You ought to hear my words. You ought to receive my message. I deserve it. Why not me? And that, I think, answers your question as to what's changed and also what's bad about it. We just don't all have the right to audience that we've come to believe that we do. And this is a difficult pill to swallow because it is the cyber utopianists sell for the internet in general, that this was supposed to democratize speech and publishing, and that you didn't have to be anyone in particular to say something, to write something, and to get it in front of potentially everybody's eyes. That didn't happen well for a long time. And it's hard to look at it and kind of go, yeah, on the whole, on average, if we take everything into account, that vision of internet life was realized. It's possible to point to examples in which it was, which then tempt us to be the center rather than the edge, right? But on the whole, it's been catastrophic for people to have that kind of democratized access. And one reason for it is that you begin to perceive yourself as this latent celebrity or this temporarily inconvenienced famous person or someone who is already famous actually whose message just hasn't been fully recognized yet and you can get that from posting one thing on instagram or, or, or facebook or, or twitter and just refreshing your feed and kind of wondering to yourself where are all the hearts because i deserve them i'm just waiting for them to roll in any minute now it's going to happen you already take that subject position i see that a lot and I think that's what's happened to young musicians is they're, in, they're encouraged to promote, but not to share. And uh, that's why it was so beautiful what Makram did is he just, he'd said, he didn't say, check me out, check out my latest project. He said, there's something that made me happy that I'd like to pass on to you because it might also make you happy. And it's not my work. Mm -hmm. It's something that brought me joy that I, I, I would like to share with you. And that's a very rare thing to happen uh, today. Maybe in academia, when there are classes about the business of music, students are encouraged, you have to get your stuff out there. You have to promote yourself. Mm -hmm. The caveat I would add to that is not to the detriment of you being a kind, compassionate, nice <laughs> person. There, is the, there has to be a balance. It's very important for us to put our music into the world and to, and to take ownership of it and to put it out there. But there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. I want to jump in here to just briefly say as we'll talk about more in a future episode. Joe is no Luddite in this respect. On Facebook, arguably the platform most preferred by jazz musicians, he has tens of thousands of followers and thousands more on Instagram and YouTube. He not only promotes his performances and recordings, but creates free content for digital circulation, oftentimes collaborating with other musicians and foregrounding projects related to social justice. I try to do it to remind people in a kind way to say, hey, you don't always have to be a promoting yourself. Sometimes if you share the work of your friends and colleagues or just something that means something to you or that brought you happiness, it doesn't always have to be about you. As far as academia goes, Matt, I have a real problem because I left the faculty of a very famous school here just because, well, for two reasons, actually. I haven't, historically, I haven't had to teach to make a living. 
Mm-hmm. I guess I prided myself on it. Stefan Harris, the great vibes player who was a former student of mine, very kindly has said about me in the past. He said, Joe is the kind of teacher who's, he opens all his books and just says, here, you can have whatever you want because I'm happy to give it because it was given to me freely. And that's something that historically I, I haven't wanted to take money for because I'm happy to give it. It's not my knowledge, but I like to, to determine who I teach and who I don't teach. And once you join the faculty of an institution, you no longer have that choice. And for me, if I don't vibe with someone personally, I don't want to have a student-teacher relationship with them because that's a very intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. I realize it's a luxury for me to be able to make that choice, I realize. And I had some difficulty with some students at this institution who I simply didn't like as people. By the time you enter college, you're a pretty developed human being. And, And I didn't like being forced to teach, not being forced, I put myself in that position, but teaching people with whom I didn't have a personal vibe at all. And the other thing was, I think jazz education has become a grift. Mm. $60,000 a year to teach someone how to be a jazz musician. I'm sorry, man. That's a grift, man. And it becomes, and then what it becomes is it becomes an art form or a craft that's only either for the very, very gifted who can, who can have full rides on scholarship or the affluent. Mm -hmm. And by and large, it's for the affluent. And that's not who this music's supposed to be for. It's not supposed to be who it's exclusively played by. And music generally, as ticket prices go through the roof, yeah. if, if art becomes something practiced by the wealthy dis- and distributed to the wealthy, mm. it's, a, it's game over as far as I'm concerned, man. So that, that speaks to some stuff that's going on in American culture. When Springsteen, the man of the people, tickets are only available to hedge fund managers, there's something wrong, man. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. It's particularly galling given the history of jazz and, and the extent to which its origins are very proletarian. Yes. Right? yes. But I agree with you. This is a problem that seems to be across American cultural forms now is that the arts and humanities are increasingly going to be something that is reserved only for those who have the means. They are treated as though you only are owed them if you have already accumulated right because they they aren't valuable unto themselves right mastering the arts and humanities is not something that is deemed valuable unto itself it is only for those who have already accumulated wealth yeah and also in a and as a teacher matt you're only able to practice to, to to be a teacher if you have an advanced degree it used to be okay i have a ba I can teach. I have a master. No, you have to have a master's degree. I have, okay, I have a master's degree. No, mm-hmm. uh, you need a PhD. And I think part of that is part of the grift. It doesn't make you any more knowledgeable or insightful. It just It's just, okay, we're going to make you spend this yeah. much more money in order to be able to pay back your loan. And I just think, man, I have to say, man, you get me thinking about so many things at the same time. It's crazy, man. As far as what I do, I, I didn't go to school for a day to learn what I do. And yet, in order to teach or to have a, a comfortable teaching position, you have to have a PhD in, in jazz. And you may not even be able to successfully play a gig and still and right. have a PhD in that field. But one thing that I wanted to say was 
there's also something, Matt. Matt, tell me what you think of this. It's so great to talk to you, first of all, man. There's also something about how art is digested in this country. We're, mm. We have a real cultus of celebrity here. It happens in music, in literature, in acting. Actors must really go through it. Great actors, but who haven't arrived in that catbird seat where they have fame. Yeah, I've heard amazing actors here in New York who we may never know. Mm-hmm. Stephen King talks about the bottom shelf in the bookstore. Every year I get the anthology of American Short Story. It comes out mm-hmm. every year. And there was one year and a, a famous writer, a, a famous, here we go, celebrity, a noted writer always writes the foreword. And in Stephen King's foreword one year, he talked about when you go into a bookstore, they put the books that are getting the publicity dollars, they put them at eye level. Right. Or the ones that are getting promoted, that, that have publicists and have a business push behind them, you walk in, they're at eye level. He said, but for me, the stuff that seems to really be even more valuable, much more valuable, valuable sometimes, is the stuff that's on that bottom shelf near your feet that you have to bend over to pick <laughs> up. And at the end of this, he gives this beautiful dissertation on, on, the, on how much beautiful literature is not being promoted. He says at, in the last sentence, he says, so here's to the bottom shelf. <laughs> and that's how I feel. And it's how I've always felt about jazz. Because when I look back, man, when I look back on who my heroes were, they weren't the people on the cover of the magazines. They were vibes mm-hmm. players like Lem Winchester from Wilmington, Delaware. And... Junior Cook, who played with Horace Silver's band. I remember there's a great saxophonist who plays with the Maria Schneider Orchestra. His name is Rich Perry. And Rich is a a poetic saxophonist. When I moved to New York, when I was 21 years old, 20 years old, I was playing in Washington Square Park with the hat out with a little group looking at money to eat. And Rich Perry walked up and was listening to us. And I got nervous because I knew who it was, that great saxophone player, man, Rich Perry. I've got some albums. I had albums in Rochester before I moved. And when he came up and he said, he said, man, you sound beautiful, which for me was the brass ring for him to say that to me. And I said, you're Rich Perry. And he said, yeah, how do you know me? And I said, man, I'm just, I'm a huge fan. And he was gobsmacked that I even knew who he was. So that's the equivalent of here's to the bottom shelf, Rich Perry's top shelf. But that's Mm -hmm. what Stephen King was talking about, is that we seem to gravitate and young musicians, young people gravitate to what's being promoted. And that's what we do as a culture. Oh, if this is being promoted, this is what's good. Like we're told what's good and we tacitly accept it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can I share something with you? Yeah, of course. I went to see what was purported as Philip Glass's 12th Symphony. Mm -hmm. Calling it a symphony is uh, ludicrous because it was so far from being symphonic in form, I can't even tell you. And I won't go into detail, but it was crap. And it was truly a case of the emperor having no clothes. Truly. And I say this objectively, that just qualitatively, and I could break it down in, in, in very concrete terms, why it was just bad music. And when it finished, and the conductor was Dennis Russell Davies, a noted conductor, he says, the composer is here, Philip Glass. And Carnegie Hall went nuts. Mm-hmm. I was just, I wasn't, I wasn't shocked. I was just, wow, this is America. It's this a brand. Is, 
Philip huh? Glass has become Philip Glass has become a brand, right? Yeah, you're it's, you're, and, you're clapping for the the brand. Yeah. Yes, because what musically what went down was so low quality. If it was a student of of a professor of large ensemble composition, that piece of music would have gotten a failing grade. <laughs> but he took five curtain calls, and it was like the Beatles had gotten back together. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to a, a couple of friends of mine who were noted contemporary classical composers. And basically, it's for people who know, it's a hoax that's been perpetrated. It's, once you arrive at a level of fame, you can do anything. And mm-hmm. hopefully it's good, but it can be crap. And people will still swallow it simply because you're famous. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a problem. And I think it speaks to some of the stuff that, that you address in American Vandal. And I understand art is subjective. I understand that. But sometimes it's such a slap in the face of how bad something is, you can't pretend that it's good and it's just a matter of your subjective opinion. If you're a saxophone player, you can't say, oh, it's just an opinion. It's just my taste. If the saxophone player doesn't know where the B flat, E flat, and A natural Mm -hmm. keys are on the horn. And so anyway, man, I digress. (laughs) No, it was a great digression. I wanted to let you go there because I do think this notion of a kind of star system that maybe at one point in time is earned, but upon being earned, its maintenance is not assured, right? And yet, those who have the good fortune to have gotten to that point are allowed a kind of free reign in perpetuity. We are turning to the same old voices and expecting them to tell us where we're going and what we can do. And they're still telling us the same things they did 20, 30 years ago, and oftentimes in inferior ways. Can I add? I'm I'm sorry, finish your thought, because I think you're making a difference in that equation, though. As my friend, the great saxophonist Bob Berg used to say, I'm not just blowing sunshine up your ass here, Matt. I'm starting to listen to more podcasts, and I feel that there's more intelligent and really insightful and interesting conversations happening in podcasts. It's just a matter of finding, and it's not just finding the right ones that agree with your ideology. It's almost, Mm -hmm. but it's finding intelligent conversation, man. It's funny. There is a book that I read years ago and it was almost like a pamphlet. It was so small. Gore Vidal, I was called Blood for Oil or something like that. Mm -hmm. And really, it talked about like the Bush, the second Bush administration and the Saudis and oil and all all the global stuff going on. And in the last paragraph of the book, Gore Vidal says, but none of this that I've talked about is going to be the downfall of America. What the downfall of this country is going to be the nascent 24-7 news channels. It's, a, it's an ever-swimming shark that constantly needs to be fed, and it's going to be the end of us. Mm-hmm. And this prescient thing that he said, I'm a lefty, man. I'm a lefty. I'm a progressive. I'm a Democrat. But I am finding myself cringing as much or more <laughs> at, at yeah. Rachel Maddow and as I am at anyone on Fox News because it's just this feed them more of what they want to hear and have more moral indignation for the other side. But it all comes down to the cynical profit motive, man. And it's not about the intelligent, soulful conversation anymore. And they're not even pretending that it is anymore. And there are a bunch of progressives who still think Fox is bad, MSNBC good. Mm -hmm. And man, it ain't the case, man. 
my father was a classicist, man. He ended his career at the University of Rochester and he taught ancient Latin and Greek and he taught a course on Carl Jung and Mandala. Very fascinating cat. And he was a beautiful cat. He was a beautiful, complicated cat. But when I was a little kid, man, I, w- I went to sleep listening to him and his graduate students arguing the merits of things, literary, political, musical, and everything in between, and having soulful, passionate conversations that went on until I fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that where those kind of conversations are happening are on podcasts like these, man. And it's, mm-hmm. impor- and it's important. The powers that be, not to become conspiracy theorists here, but the powers that be don't want you to exist. They don't want you to survive. They don't want these intelligent conversations happening. They want groupthink and for everything to be wrapped up in this easy to digest ideology that we're all supposed to sh- you know, sh- share one on one side and one on the other side. And it's not healthy, man. It's not healthy. No. Yeah. You know? I got to be careful about saying that this is just a way of celebrating the podcast as a medium for criticism. But yeah, I think that one thing that I have really appreciated about the podcast medium is the extent to which it allows a whole lot of voices to collaborate with one another. I love writing. (laughs) I write essays myself. As with you, it's a craft. It's a technique, right? It's something that you have to keep doing and working at. It's always in progress. And, And there should and always will be a place for the monograph, for the the essay. So but the ways in which knowledge is best formed, and I think jazz musicians have taught me this as much as anybody, is in communication, in collaboration, right? That there is no feeling and, and I put this even at the sort of neurological level, there is no feeling like mutual improvisation with a band. The, the things that it triggers in your brain, the things that it forces upon you are hard to manufacture anywhere else. And they stick, right? Like the, that when you have that experience where you are simultaneously with a bassist and a drummer producing something and you don't even have to be looking at each other, right? You, you know, you hear what you, the person's going to do next and you respond like that. I think stimulating soulful conversation like this one actually is the same thing. I, well, and that's, that's exactly where I was going, right? The, the, the goal for a, a good conversation and for a podcast that then turns that conversation, just as musicians turn that improvisation into a performance, a podcast turns that conversation into a product of some sort that can be consumed by others. I, I, I will never get the same kinds of stimulation from me sitting at the keyboard, reading my notes, trying to interpret a work of literature, trying to critique a structure of the economy. Like, I get a lot out of that. And I think it informs my ability to work in this medium. But what I get out of this medium is very different. And I think that's part of what we're lacking maybe in some of the things we've been talking about with this celebrity star system, right, is this focus on the individual genius, right? That this person producing in isolation a work of art or a work of scholarship that we can appreciate, right? There is so much more to be had with minds butting up against each other. <laughs> 